Hi there. We have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. Hey guys, we're here, episode six. Thank you so much for taking the time out. Um, if we should go around the room, Drew, who are you? What are you about? Why are you here? <laughs> uh, who am I? Who are any of us? So I'm, I'm Drew Linsalata. I am the creator and host of the Anxious Truth podcast, uh, which you will find at theanxioustruth.com. And I am here because this is like the coolest hour that I spend most weeks with, with these knuckleheads, like helping out and asking questions and dealing with you guys. So happy to be here as always. Love that. Kimberly? Hello, um, my name is Kimberly Quinlan. I'm a marriage and family therapist. I am a human. I love being a human. <laughs> Alien DNA, I told you. Yes, yes. And um, I specialize in anxiety disorders here in California, even though my accent is not Californian. And uh, last but not least, Josh. <laughs> last and certainly least. Uh, I'm Joshua Fletcher, Anxiety Josh. I'm a psychotherapist and author specializing in the world of anxiety disorders and anxiety-related conditions. Dean, I don't know why we're doing this now. We've sold enough of these books. We don't need to do this anymore. <laughs> why don't we just go on holiday and forget about everyone because we can do all that. How about that, Dean? Let's, let's pay someone to do these. But we, we, who are these people? Why are we even wasting our time with them? Because <laughs> we love it. We love it. We really do. And I know we all share the love for, for helping others on their own anxiety journey. Um, guys, what, what have you been hearing? Any noise? Um, any any specific topics that anyone wants to bring to the table? Anyone want to start off first? Drew, Josh? Josh? Yeah, I could start. No problem. I actually, this week, I, I asked the good people in my Facebook group for some questions, and we got some. Nice. So should we should we take a few of them? Yeah, yeah let's cool. go. All right, let's do it. Um, how about this one? This one was asked twice. Here's one if you have time. What is the best way to detach a memory from anxiety? Examples, I went to the doctor and had bad news last time, so now I fear the doctor. I got depersonalized last time I drove, so I'm afraid it will happen again. So the question there is how uh, how do I continue to practice that? In other words, you know, how do you detach the memory? The memory triggers the anxiety. I'll, uh, sure. jump in on that. Josh, do you want to go? Yeah, I'll jump in. So um, if you're looking for a how, I think your how is to keep going to the doctor. So if you don't, if you let's go into an avoidant behavior now, that will always be your last memory of being at the doctor's. But if you have the ability to just allow that memory, because the memory is still just a thought and it comes with some emotions, but Emotions are not a problem either, really. They're painful. But if you can ha allow that emotion and that thought as you go to the doctor, then you now have two memories with the doctor. And if you go the third time, well, now you have three memories of the doctor. So I think by ex continued exposure, um, you'll have, it will be one of the memories of going to the doctor instead of it being the only one. Love that. Um, Josh, have you got anything? 
Uh, yeah, and also like, I think this is where kind of CBT helps in the sense of when CBT, CBT challenges thoughts. So, you know, I've got a love-hate relationship with CBT. Uh, and for stuff like this, I think when you're practicing the exposure, like Kimberly said, also go in with the foundation of actually challenging those thoughts. You know, of all those thoughts, look at the evidence that you have to counter them. So how many times have you been to the doctor actually and it's been fine? You know, I know I, I've been to the doctor and heard tragic news with loved ones, stuff like that. And I've had that, that association with the doctor. But then actually, if I really weighed it up and challenged it, 99% of the times I've gone to the doctor, it's been fine. It's actually been a positive experience. So arm yourself with that. Obviously, anxiety doesn't really care too much about the percentages. But it is helpful to know that and sit down and really challenge and reflect on it and then practice the exposure and, and those kind of things like Kimberly said. It's really interesting what you said there, Josh, isn't it? Because I, I feel that a lot of people who um, have an anxiety disorder almost see the doctor as this this bad, evil thing and really struggle with going to the doctors when, when you, like Kim, you said, the best thing to do is go because they're there to help us, aren't they? They're there to, to make things better. So just like, I love that what you said, just because you had one bad experience doesn't mean that the next time you go to the doctors it's going to be a... Uh, the same experience, is it? You go to the doctors because they're medically trained to help you get better. That's what they're there for. So, yeah, keep going. Yeah. I think the bad news, um, it was Lisa who asked the question. She went to the doctor and got bad news, so then she fears the doctor. So it was a real event in a way, but that's you have to recognize the distortion that says, well, the fear is going to say that because it happened once, it will happen again, which is – not necessarily true. Those are independent trials, unless it's a follow-up visit, you know, for the for the issue. But, you know, I, I think it's always a lot of it comes back to recognizing those distortions that always make the danger seem more real than it really is. So is mm-hmm. that. All right. Should we do another one? Yeah, definitely. I just, just want oh. to mention just while you guys, I don't know if you guys can see it, but on my screen, Instagram was were, were very nice to offer the badges to me. So I can see that people have already purchased the badges to um, support the recovery room. So I really appreciate the people that are doing that. Well, badges? I guess you guys can buy badges. We don't need those stinking badges. Does everybody get that? Or no, <laughs> that's an old reference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate Yeah, next question, Drew. Let's go on. All right. You got it, guys. Um, this one is and this is interesting because I'm going to give you the question and I'll tell you what he put in front of the question, which plays right into this. Um, how do you address insecurity and self-confidence in a relationship? How to appropriately address negative thoughts like what if they cheat? What if my need for reassurance drives them away? How to be present and not worry about what they're doing all the time. But he bookended this question with, if you get a chance, maybe you can answer. And I know there are people with more serious in- issues, but which you see, you know, so um, Shane, to, to, what do you guys think about that? It sounds like a maybe an ROCD issue. No, that's no, it couldn't, it can be an ROCD issue. That's a therapy issue, that's an attachment issue. Uh, and mm-hmm. bear in mind, when we're constantly worried about our relationship, leaving the relationship, will I be hurt? Will I be rejected? That's stuff that you should explore in therapy because it's not as, uh, yes, okay, if you treat it like ROCD and sitting with uncertainty, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not as cut and dry with exposure and stuff. If you're terrified of your partner leaving you or cheating you or hurting you in a certain way, I mean, nine times out of ten, this is due to kind of a very unstable attachment growing up. 
you know, if you, if you, if your mom and dad are absolutely mental, maybe your mom or dad, one of them was absent and the other is hot and cold or whatever, or affection wasn't often given. Our brains interject that they learn that. And the threat response when it comes to anxiety uh, tunes into things that aren't just intrusive thoughts and craziness. The threat response actually is tuned to things that threaten our self-esteem and our attachment to others. So if you've never really kind of been raised with that unconditional positive regard or as much as possible, suddenly attachments in relationships are seen as a threat. The threat response in our brain sees them as a threat. And so you start to misinterpret things like, is he being cold with me? Oh, is he out late? Because it's a, because you never learn to sit with that uncertainty and that attachment because it's, it's never been learned. So yeah, you can treat it like an ROCD thing if, the, if it is ROCD and stuff like that. But actually, most ROCD is quite specific. Aside from that, you just got really insecure attachment. And there's a great book on that. And I know you like reading, Drew, but it's actually called Attached. Yeah, it's, really, it's great. Really, it's a good book. Uh, because it tells you how much pieces of shit your mum and dad are and what they did to you. <laughs> That's the subtitle, isn't it? Attached, how your mum and dad are pieces of shit. Right? Do you well, your your mum and dad try their best, and some, well, some of them don't, some of them aren't great. But yeah, you know. Josh, do you ever get it the other way? Um, so someone comes into the therapy room who've had a family great, um, like, uh, like uh, bringing up, so mum and dad, together great nucleus and they then obsess on wanting that and it becomes an obsession almost yeah yeah so people that grow up with perfect there's no such thing as a perfect childhood so one i hear a lot particularly is the people when every time someone says to me but i had such a perfect childhood i went to oxford university my i'm successful my parents are successful and immediately my head's going because the one thing that they don't learn a lot of people is they never learn that it's okay to fail and so and have their, emotions their, their, their parents are on a pedestal they're on a pedestal suddenly life hits maybe an anxiety disorder maybe a breakup maybe you lost a job maybe you smoked a joint too many and work caught you suddenly you're not on the pedestal and they've never learned what it's like to be off the pedestal Whereas me, I'm a scumbag. I grew up a scumbag. My mum raised me very well, single mother. She always said, do what you want, but I'll let you know if it's disappointing. And so I did do whatever I wanted. And when every time she was disappointed, she was like, mm, I pushed it too far. Uh, and that was great. But also I had a, an absent father. So it would be a bit like, hmm, is this enough? I, I need to be on a pedestal to impress authoritative men, et cetera, et cetera. It's not just about anxiety. It's, it's not as simple as that. And honestly, therapy, person-centered therapy, and I love transactional analysis therapy and relational therapy that Kimberly does. Explore it, find it. Um, unless it's just OCD, which in that sense, um, in that sense, you'll know it's OCD when you've had other themes of OCD too, and it's just latched onto that. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. It probably doesn't. <laughs> uh. Yeah. So, so what I would what I would say to that as a as a an, another idea is, once you do identify if you have that insecure or anxious attachment, um, the work is actually can be used a lot of mindfulness around this, right? Which is to be able to just be observe the thought, like I'm having the thought that my partner might be cheating on me, right? Um, these are sort of more practical, like practical, you know, how to skills. The other thing is. 
as we have with all forms of anxiety, is can you hold space for that anxiety without trying to get a false sense of control? And a lot of those behaviors they said in that comment were sounded like a false sense of control, like, you know, watching for them or wanting to know where they are. And, and so I think it's actually holding space for the anxiety you feel without engaging in those behaviors and just allowing that to come and then going to therapy and say, I, as I sat with that feeling, these are the stuff that this is what came up for me. And, and that can be really helpful. Those are great answers. Thank you guys. I, I think his bookends probably speak a lot toward what Josh was saying. It's not necessarily just a mechanical anxiety problem. Like I'm really insecure. And if it's okay, I'd like to ask you about me being insecure. So that I think that kind of speaks a, few, a little bit there. So we'll do one more from, from my crew here, I guess. Um, this is, I think, a relatively short one. Well, kind of not. But Cody asks, he says about 80 or 90, 80 or 90% recovered in his estimation, which is great. Uh, my question is, even though I feel I'm recovered, will I experience dissociation of minor anxiety? He's looking for the 100% assurance that he will be free of panic, health anxiety, and depersonalization forever. Yeah, how do you how do you not demand that assurance? Yeah, nothing's hundred percent guaranteed, um, is it? Especially with anxiety or anxiety recovery. Um, if he start if he's doing the things he was doing pre-anxiety, so if he's not avoiding things that he was doing before the anxiety disorder, if he's uh, comfortable with the the anxious feelings that that are coming and uh, is not having a negative impact on his day-to-day -day living, then that sounds like anxiety recovery to me. Um, you, you're not, you're not going to wake up and never feel anxious again. If you did, I'd be scared. I'd be worried because there'd be something wrong because that side, that um, protective uh, system that's there to help you it really, really needs to be there for situations that we do find ourselves fearful in. Um, but yeah, if he's able to live like he did pre-anxiety disorder, I'd say he's well on his way to recovery right and i always cool. say re recovery is the the willingness to have anxiety in your life in my opinion um not the absence of anxiety and like dean said it's being able to do your daily activities but it's also a mindset right is so recovery isn't dear god i hope i never have anxiety again phew thank god i don't have it it's usually, like I said, this openness and willingness and mastery over feeling 10 out of 10 anxiety so that you're not afraid of that anymore. It's just like, yeah, I may or may not. And that's not the point. Um, my anxiety levels do not determine my recovery, but more my willingness to have any emotion. Great answer. Cool. <laughs> Got to add, Josh, or are we all good on that? Nah. Okay. Uh, Dean and Kimberly nailed it. <laughs> I think so. All right, that's that's the those are the question, questions for my my tribe. So what do you guys um, Who's Kim? next? Kim, do you want to go there? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, we had this big conversation in the OCD community this week, which I thought was really beautiful around: Do we need our therapist to have the disorder that we we are struggling with in oh, order for that therapist to really understand? Oh, oh. I love, yeah, I love that question. Oh, that's, that's pretty. Cool. That's a good conversation. Yeah. So, so I'm curious to know because I, I think that I did a poll on this in my stories. It was beautiful to see the results and to see the answers. I'm really curious to hear your answers. I'd love to, yeah. Well, my, 
off my experience, I would say um, it would have been really, really useful um, for someone who'd been through a panic disorder to be able to really connect with them on that level. Uh, Josh, I know that you will probably say that they don't have to go through it, I guess. Um, it's an interesting one. I'm not sure what the right answer is. But I think, I think it's opinion. Yeah. yeah, I think personally, I, I would have liked it. I, I would have liked someone who, who's walked in my shoes, who's who'd, who'd been avoiding certain situations. And I think that would have helped me even more on my road to recovery. You, in the short answer, no. Um, <laughs> you, you need, it, it, Dean is right. And I think it adds a USP as a, a tool because therapists have toolkits, you know, and some of them are great. Now there's a double-edged sword there because if you've got a therapist who has had an anxiety disorder and wants to help you with theirs, just because they've had it doesn't mean they'll help your anxiety disorder because anxiety is a pick and mix of three different things, thoughts, feelings, and sensations. And there's a massive list in each one. So mine would be like, oh, what if I lose control, feelings, dread, and nausea, sensations, derealization. Whereas someone else with an anxiety disorder might have, uh, what if I um, accidentally kill myself? And then my sensations are, oh my God, I've got eye floaters and a headache. And then the feelings might be, oh my God, horror and maybe unease. Different presentations. Now, me, my USP is that I've had anxiety, so people come and work with me, and that's great. But at the same time, and this is for me personally, I've been in therapy that with people have had anxiety disorders, and they make my experiences about them. So it's like, oh, I've had that. No, no, man, you haven't had that. Like, okay, you can relate to what it's like to have an anxiety disorder, mm. but just because someone has been through it doesn't mean they know what to do in the sense of a progressive in progressive therapy now i know and i always recommend my friend rianne she has not had an anxiety disorder but she is shit hot cbt and so therefore she knows and has heard of derealization depersonalization all these things and she has the empathy and the compassion which is enough to help you feel understood my answer to that in short would be does your therapist know enough about anxiety disorders or are they going to treat it like it's a root cause or something? So yes, it can be a good tool, but also it can actually work against you. My answer would be, do they know enough and are they passionate enough about anxiety disorders to work with it? You, you guys must hear this a lot as well. The, the number one thing people say about doctors is just go out and not a therapist, a doctor is... They just don't get it. They don't understand what it's like to go through an anxiety disorder. They just, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. The amount of times I've heard that uh, in the community is, it's up there with, it's up there with, yeah, with, with the frequently asked questions. So, <laughs> what is that noise? Do you, do you live on the train tracks? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> There's like a big truck in front of my house. Hang on. That's that scene from The Godfather. Michael's about to kill Salazzo. Like, never. They make all these old references that none of you guys get. I love good. The Godfather. Come on, man. It's great, right? Like, that's the sound before Michael gets up and kills Salazzo. But anyway. Um, 
I can let me add this. By the way, I think that's a great conversation that you guys are having. I can tell you. Well, I'll add to that. I'll add this to it. In my Facebook group, and I know you're tired of hearing me talk about the Facebook group, but it is big and it is growing. I have no less than ten practicing therapists in that group who came to the group not to help but for help because they they know they studied they understood the theory, but when it happened to them. It took on a whole different color. And it's great to see that they can reach out to people and be human and say, look, I know the theory, but I've never done this. And this is so much harder than I thought, which is the common thing that you hear them say. And as they start to move down the road to recovery, not because the group fixes them, they do their work and they get better, but they get support from their peers. And invariably, they will say, wow, I feel so much more confident and prepared now in, in taking my clients through these things. Some of the therapists were clearly humanistic or dynamic therapists, so they they really did not know how to deal with their own anxiety disorder. Some of them are anxiety disorder specialists. They just never experienced it themselves. So I, I would agree with all of you guys. Like It would be helpful, but it's probably not required as long as the person is trained properly and focused properly. Yeah, right. that helps. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think, like Josh said, empathy and compassion trump skills and lived experience in my, in my experience. Like, I, I think that if you have a therapist who's willing to say, tell me what that is like for you, I, I want to understand specifically your case. Because even if I've had a similar case, it's not the same. Um, so I think that is really interesting. And the reason the conversation came up is I had, I had mentioned that I don't have OCD and some of my followers were like, what? They thought that the only reason I, uh, the only reason I got OCD is because I had to have had it, and so for them it became this conversation around: Do you need to have OCD to get OCD? Right. Cool. Absolutely, and and without hesitation, I would refer any American client to Kimberly because she knows a shit on OCD, and yet hasn't hasn't been through it. You know, I it it, it depends how passionate you are on the subject. I've spoken to expensive psychologists and who know in theory about anxiety disorders or whatever no but actually i've spoken to some humanistic therapists and i do a lot of training for counselors in the uk who are trained in person centered but they'll come to my training and they'll tell me you know what you talk after listening to you talking about anxiety disorders i just explained some basic psychoeducation and it saved that it's you know it, it saved them a load of good i always think of dean actually when I think about this because part of dean's recovery which he talks about in this Do book, it. is that his his um his uh where um his um his part of his recovery was just his mate at work saying hey uh, that sounds familiar no have you heard that it's actually this and this is what's happening and and you can if you can equip any therapist with that psychoeducation you're onto a winner. Mm. I love yeah, that. Okay. What's new? Um, how do I tell my medical doctor that I have a, a, a disorder that is usually considered taboo? I'm having intrusive thoughts about touching kids and killing my family. Oh no, what's going so on? You, right. So you want to eat your dog, right, Josh? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not my, not Strudel. Leave him out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Leave him, would, leave him out of this. 
how would you guys go about telling, I mean, and I think this is very true for taboo thoughts, but I think some people just have this about like telling someone they have depression, right? Telling their medical professional, like, I think I'm actually clinically depressed. So what would be your advice in terms of sharing that with your medical doctor? Well, if, if, you, if you've got a doctor saying you've got anxiety disorder, they should know that. And if your doctor doesn't know that, get another doctor. Uh, yeah. I've shifted doctors many of times until someone's, they don't have to get it, but if they've heard of it and they understand it, they'll be like, ah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, and so, some doctors get it, some don't. I think you just, so much of this process involves facing discomfort in, in all kinds of forms. And that is uncomfortable. Telling somebody who is not close to you, a stranger, somebody you're paying, you know, in a way that is your doctor's relationship with you. This person, very personal thing is difficult, but you know, there's really no way around it. You just have to, you just have to deal with that discomfort and be okay with the fact that maybe the doctor won't respond the way you want them to. It's possible. And then, well, okay, if he doesn't respond or she doesn't respond this way, what will I do then? Maybe I'll change doctors or I'll have a protracted conversation, but you can work your way through it. And I would think that most doctors, I would hate to think that people would find a doctor that would respond with ridicule or scorn or judgment. It's they should be trained at All least enough to know horror stories over here, Drew. I hear you. I hear you. It's true. I think, I think the thing is because we're with anxiety, we're thinking inwards. Uh, we know how uncomfortable it is for us to speak to the doctor, so we're we're portraying that the doctor is going to feel as uncomfortable as we are. I know a lot of people if they don't feel comfortable sharing it straight off the bat. They like write it down and, and literally hand over what they wanted to say to the doctor, and the doctor will read it. That that works well. Um, that's a good, so, idea. yeah, good good advice. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, and I've had clients print out some an article and hand it to their doctor and sit and wait for them to read it, and then say that's what I'm experiencing. Yeah, you can always do yeah. the asking for a friend. My friend wants to read his doctor. What would you say to that, doctor? <laughs> So I'm just, just saying. <laughs> um, okay, very broad last question, but I, I'm curious actually just because I want to know, just want to know, is most important lesson in recovery? Most important lesson from recovery? Oh, for, you, for each of you. Um, I'll start uh, off with by saying it's not linear. Um, there isn't... There isn't a, it's not a structured end goal. So it's not going to, it's not a six month or six week plan to, to anxiety free recovery. There's humps and bumps in the road, uh, but you can get there because I got there and I'm no special than, than anyone else. Yeah, you are, Dean. You're special <laughs> to me. You're special. We love you. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to coax out that troll that keeps coming on. <laughs> I know he's quiet today. I'm, I'm kind of missing him a little bit. I will say there's not been enough plug. He comes out when you start plugging your, your livelihood. I know. That's, well, here, let, let me help out with that. Because as it turns out, the book that I'm writing now is called Lessons from the Panic Zone. And it's about the lessons that I learned in recovery. And, yeah, doo -doo -doo -doo, the panic zone. That's a tentative title. We'll see, we'll see what my editor has to say about that. But uh, the, the biggest lesson that I learned, in all honesty, in retrospect, was accurate threat assessment which I totally typoed as thread assessment when I posted on it on Instagram, but maybe I'm was talking about sewing. That's possible. So, but accurate threat assessment, because when you go through this recovery process, you really get a good grip on when you uncover the irrationality of how you assess so many things as threats that really aren't, 
you get really good at knowing what's really a threat and what you kind of can just let go beyond just anxiety symptoms and anxiety and intrusive thoughts and all that stuff, just in life in general, I am way better at being much less reactive and being much less of a, believe it or not, I'm less of a hothead, uh, believe it or not, I am, like than I used to be. And I, I attribute the lessons that I learned in recovery, accurate threat assessment, what doesn't matter, a lot doesn't matter, a lot doesn't matter in life, really. So that, very valuable. Oof. Oof. That, was good, that was a good answer, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Good night, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody hell. How do you follow that? Um, most yeah, important right. most important recovery lesson for me uh, and, and as is someone who has uh, spent an, uh, a year as an agoraphobe I, I, I couldn't even leave my room genuinely and I think it's the reason why I do so well I don't offer anything that does that isn't already out there but it's quite simply it's just anxiety you're not broken. You're not. You don't need to be fixed. You, it's just anxiety. But if you behave like I did for a year, like I was broken, like I was fixed, like I had to sit at home and ruminate and find the miracle thought and reassure myself and find that hundred percent certainty that I wasn't nuts, bananas, crazy. Yeah, the biggest advice I give to people is: you're not broken. You're not weak. There's nothing wrong with you. Just things are a bit disordered. And disorder is not a scary word. It's just they're not in order. And that was it. And for me, that was the, and I still remind myself sometimes, that's okay. You know, you, you once you put things back in order, you feel like you again, you're not broken. Perfect. Thank you. I tried. It needed a Kim, piano in the Kim, background. I want to hear yours. It did. It really did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was that was the perfect balance. Oh, but I've, got, I've got emotional reactions. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, what would your number one lesson be? Um, I think that the long term recovery lesson is similar to Josh's, um, but less beautifully delivered, um, <laughs> which would be. Um, you have to be able to be your own first line of 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 support um you can't you know that with compassion this becomes much much easier so you can do all the tools but if you're beating yourself up the whole time that's that takes a long it takes much longer so for me it has been that compassion piece has been so important for my long-term recovery i i truly believe it is what has helped me from not relapsing or you know going down spirals because i'm able to meet whatever shows up with compassion instead of looping and that has been instrumental for me love that awesome that's um, it yeah great uh josh um what have people been asking um <sighs> Yeah, I, I had one. Um, I'm, it was a good one. Uh, I, what I'm afraid to practice meditation because once I read, I've read a few articles where people have practiced meditation and they've gone crazy. Oh, does that mean I should stop practicing meditation? And is it possible that I could go crazy? I want to know what. Yes. I, yeah. <laughs> it is possible. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, but yeah. that doesn't mean Too you late. stop meditating. 
Right, right, exactly. Um, I'll take that because that was a topic actually, uh, again, that I dealt with in the group not that long ago. And we had somebody come into the group who was was there with an agenda, though, because this person was part of a an online I'm organization. I'm Facebook group. This is going to be the worst thing that's ever going to happen to you. Yeah, you yeah. should. Yeah, you should totally join. We would love to have you. But um, the <laughs> he was part of an online organization that was trying to raise awareness of this terrible tragedy, which is that some people do experience extreme duress and meditation. But the part that he kind of left out was it was all transcendental meditation, which is a different kind of meditation. So they were kind of beating the drum that like, hey, don't keep telling people to meditate because meditation is dangerous. When the vast body of knowledge and, and actual real world evidence says it is not. And he was actually talking about a different type of meditation that I think well, any of us are ever talking about. Transcendental meditation is a completely different animal altogether. Um, and it did scare a lot of people, though, and it scared them away from what is a very useful tool. I always talk about meditation as a focus training tool. I don't care if you achieve some higher level of awareness or consciousness. It has nothing to do with that. Maybe you will. If you learn to levitate accidentally, that's awesome. But I only care that you learn to let a thought leave and go back to a, a focus point that you choose. So there's no unraveling of some deep hidden psychosis. It's strictly a focus tool. That's it. That's what I tell people. So no, I don't see it as dangerous at all. Yeah, I 100% agree with, with what you said there, Dre. And also to sit with anxious um, feelings. So sit with your heart racing, sit if you're sweating, sit if you're feeling on edge. Um, just out of interest, what is that type of meditation? Do you know? Yeah, I was thinking that. My uncle yeah. used to do that. I almost messed him up. <laughs> Tra that transcendental meditation? Yeah. I'm not an expert on, on TMI. TMI was big in the 60s and 70s, and transcendental meditation is actually all about going deep, 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 deep inside and just locking out the whole world and just just burrowing as deep into your psyche as you can possibly get. And you can see where maybe somebody who's got maybe some unresolved trauma or stuff might have some stuff come up that way, for sure. No doubt about that. But it's not the type of, I don't, and I honestly don't know what, what meditation experts would call our meditation, where it's mm -hmm. usually breath centric and, and more based on being focused and clearing your mind, as opposed to burrowing in, 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 in. So that's TMI in, in a nutshell. That's, that's as far as I know about it. I'm not an expert. But. Right. So so what I would say here for your your person asking this question is that I think that we have a misunderstanding of what meditation actually is. Um, meditation is ultimately bringing your attention to something. Um, it's that simple. There is all kinds of meditations. There are walking meditations. You can meditate while washing the dishes. Um, you can meditate in using very, very specific techniques, transcendental. Um, you know, there are so many different, going back from thousands of years, types of meditations. But the basic foundation of a meditation is to bring your attention to something. So meditation in and of itself is ultimately no different to you be concentrating. You can meditate, like I said, you could meditate on your keyboard right now if you wanted to. The thing, the thing that strikes me here is that you're having a thought that meditation is bad, right? Um, that's just content. And we don't want to give that content because people have the same thing. Like, well, what if I smoke pot? Will that make me go crazy? Well, that's also just a thought. What if I use my pencil, will it make me go crazy? That also is a thought. And so I think it's important to be able to um, break this down into what it really is, which is you have a thought about something. 
um, meditation is the the practice of bringing yourself to a, a a focal point, and when your mind goes off, you bring it back, and when your mind goes off, you bring it back, and that is a muscle that you strengthen no different to your bicep curl. Mm. Mm. I definitely need to strengthen my bicep curl for sure. <laughs> <laughs> your mental bicep curl, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think this is where I, I believe that we think meditation is like this sort of like sitting and be, I mean, I have practiced meditation for many, many years. I've attended week long silent retreats where you actually are in a meditation position, but my best meditation practice is walking meditation. Um, it's simply just being able to go, Oh, I'm up here. And can I bring it to, you know, Josh's wonderful face. It, yeah, he is wonderful. <laughs> Dean's wonderful face. Drew's wonderful. So, no, so that's let's go, all let's it go is. with the first answer. Yeah, yeah. Do you see Too that? late, man. She threw us under the bus, Dean. You were all like this, and I was like, I have to say something. <laughs> Damn, she's cold. <laughs> uh, Dean, did you ever do meditation? Um, my, yeah, so I, um, Kim was talking about uh, being mindful in the situation. I, I, I do particularly like uh, mindfulness and be, just being present, uh, being aware of the thoughts coming in and out. I, I use the analogy of um, treating the thoughts like clouds in the sky and you've got the blue sky behind these clouds that are passing through your mind and, and just being present in the moment. I did find it useful did it help me in high levels of anxiety? No, but was it good um, for a weekly uh, routine and, and for my overall psyche? Yeah. 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 Same. Same. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cool. Cool. Uh, leading on to that, the second question I had, it was in relation to that, because like I think, Drew, you said like meditation is very breath centric. Um, so the next question is, I... I get really worried that when I focus on my breath, I then have this responsibility that I've got to keep breathing and I'm afraid I'll stop breathing. And then suddenly my breathing is in the center of my focus and I worry about it. What can I do about that? I think it's, it's, it is yeah, scary. Well, it's weird. And then it's like, then yeah. it's not weird. <laughs> I hear that. A lot of people will say that. My answer is always, well, focus on something else. The breath isn't magic in meditation. No, that's true. Like the breath isn't magic in meditation. We hear a lot about like, oh, cleansing breaths and grounding breaths. It's just a tool because if you are alive, you have breath. And so you can use that as a focus point. But focus on an object or focus on a sound or a smell. You don't have to focus on your breath. It just happens to be convenient. It's not required. It's yeah. not special. It's just a place to go. And yet so. a lot of people do fall like even just that awareness. I remember doing it. I'm like, I know I, I'm not going to stop breathing, but then. I'm a bit like, oh my god, I need to. I forgot. I, I forgot to breathe. And you're right. Actually, adding to that question, do you think in the world of anxiety disorders, this whole romanticizing of the breath is actually quite okay. counterproductive? Right. Uh, can I answer this? So I don't have a a um, book to show you, but my book is in the publishing stage. It's going to be released in October. <laughs> oh, 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 you press. Hang on, let me draw it for Kim you. Is have you got a title yet, Kim? We're here for it, the recovery room, Kimberly. Think of the people. <laughs> I'm such a I'm such a fraud, Josh. Um. <laughs> 
Um, the, the title of the book is The Self-Compassion Workbook for OCD. And it, it basically takes you through how to practice um, ERP from a self-compassion lens. And it's very heavy on meditation and mindfulness the whole way through. But in the reason I bring this up is most meditations are taught with the focal point being the breath. And the thing that I have put at the bottom of everything is if you are someone who suffers from what we call sensory motor obsessions, um, sensory motor obsessions are an obsession on a body part. It's usually your breath can be your blinking. It could be um, a certain body part. Um, if you're getting stuck in that obsession, you can always bring your focal point to something else, whether that be um, a meditate, like it could be your lip gloss, it could be, you know, something in front of you. Um, so you can bring your attention to that instead and have that be your focal point. And then slowly you can return to practicing with the breath as an opportunity for exposure so that you can practice being uncertain and uncomfortable around that. What if I forgot my lip gloss that day? You would have to uh -huh. use your lipstick. <laughs> She's always ready. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you guys think about um, people when they say like breathing through the belly and that um, kickstarting your um, calming sense? Do you think any science in it? Uh, Ice cubes. I yeah, there there is a lot of science for a lot of these techniques. I think that for those who have anxiety. You just have to practice because a lot of those tools won't work for you. I'm never, I was never a person that resonated with the techniques. Like, you know, you can do the, like the up and the deep, breathe in and breathe out and follow your finger, or you could do belly and heart. And there are so many things and so many people find them incredibly helpful. I, I personally found them to be um, just one extra thing to have my mind manage. And so for me, I, I practice just a swinging door. My breath goes in, my breath goes out. And that's, I just imagine a swinging door and that really helped me. Um, but um, if you have a lot of trauma, then they, there's more science that those more somatic experiences can be more helpful. Interesting. Can I, the belly breathing thing I, I would like to address for a second. It is really helpful, not because it's a panic shield and it like somehow supercharges the relaxation response and ends your panic. But for people who suffer from air hunger, they have the air hunger problem. I can't get a deep enough breath. The natural like instinctual response is to continue spend all day trying to fill your lungs up to here with air. And I have found that belly breathing, no, 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 don't expand your chest, expand your belly and your mm -hmm. diaphragm tends to snap people out of that air hunger thing really quickly. It doesn't instantly calm them down or make it go away, but they're trying to do a thing that's almost not physically possible, which is mm -hmm. expand your rib cage when really it's your diaphragm that expands. That's how your lungs fill. So right. practicing that technique is really useful to a lot of people just from a mechanical standpoint. And it also helps avoid hyperventilation, which is a big problem for people who make right. it anxious. Right. Yeah. So it's mechanical. Well thought, Dre. That was a great answer. Um, for, for me, as someone who is susceptible to OCD, like I'm very, um, I mean, I, I, I'm not susceptible enough now to get a diagnosis, but in the past, I always have had nervous tics and weird rituals growing up. Uh, but for me, I remember in the midst of panic disorder, like when Dean and I had a very similar experience, this, this over 
this over-importance on the breath actually made me feel like I was responsible for my own anxiety because I couldn't breathe properly. And I know I'm not the only one who thinks that. Yeah. Yeah. Who the hell was that? Someone just started. <laughs> I want to tell you what the phone was playing, but I'll save it. Oh, Kim knows. You guys all know what it was playing. <laughs> it's being tested right now. <laughs> I really am so, not. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, so what, like to echo what Kimberly said, anything in the present is cool. And that's why you can have. It, Actually, in metacognitive therapy, which I always bang on about, like I'm trained in it, which I'm not, but I know about it, so I could. Um, but like, Fraud. they actually thin off the breath. They're like, nah, we don't, we bend the breath off. Any sensory, any sensory, what did you say before, Kimberly? Sensory body? Sensory motor? Sensory motor. Any yeah. sensory motor sensations, they've realized, nah, anything external from us is great at the moment because they realize a lot of anxiety disorders do that and that's why the attention training technique which i've had an experience of and if you want to try the attention training technique there's a a version of it on soundcloud for free by a guy called jono roberts and it's an experience of every i do this one today (laughs) because i'm susceptible to ocd uh you just practicing with your attention in different spatial locations for different amount periods of time because like Kimberly said attention is a muscle and and it's wonderful I'm like ooh and for and for people with OCD it's it's top beans top beans yeah um, I've got a question here how can I stop anxiety from affecting my job I've been working from home now I'm uh, required to go back to the office and I'm feeling really anxious about it uh, do you guys have any tips about that? Anyone? Sure. I mean, if it, I think the first thing is, um, you know, it's, it's a hard time. We've had many, many town halls over COVID anxiety. Um, and I think that this is where you, you can first make a decision on whether you want to go back and whether the what the job you have, you're willing to do that depends on, again, some people are making decisions based on their own personal health and their own values and so forth. But if you're only not, if you're not going back because of fear, um, I would encourage you to remind yourself that you're stronger than you think. Um, any first day back is going or first day of anything is going to be anxiety. My children went back to school this week. Um, it was incredibly anxiety provoking for me because they haven't been in school or exposed to COVID in 14 months. Um, but it, as I said to my kids, because my daughter was quite freaked, is we're just going to do one step at a time. We'll walk to the class. Let's just focus on getting to the school. And then once we get there, we'll then we'll put our focus on getting our scan in and then we'll focus on the next thing and breaking it down into small doable steps um oh yay back. <laughs> um nice to see you troll um, Where is, where's the troll i've not seen him i missed him there you go. Um, oh, so, there we we're all excited. Oh, there we, oh you almost, we almost got all the way through <laughs> oh damn it Nice to see you. Now it's Friday. Now it's Friday. Now it's Friday, guys. For you. <laughs> I was really <laughs> thinking we weren't going to make it there for a second. We missed um, you, Mohammed, no. man. Where have you been? Oh, yeah. it's, not, it's not recovery room without you. We sold basement. a whole bunch Sorry. of stuff. <laughs> we did. I know. And, then, and we used the money to throw a big party, and you're not invited. 
<laughs> we're, um, we're giving out free advice to everyone but you and your family. <laughs> so, um, you and your family. You have to take it that one extra. <laughs> Pox and all your answers. Yeah. So I would just sorry. Can we step all over your answer? No, sorry, answer. I totally cut it off. Um, I would just take it one step at a time. It, it's doable. It's tolerable. Again, it's it's mostly about making space for like, yeah, this is totally anxiety provoking. The whole world is going to have to a transition back, and we're all going to be taking those steps. So be kind to yourself. Back to that compassion word again. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Josh, have you got any anything on that? Uh, tips for for going back into the office um, when working it from home. So, yeah. I, I, as a therapist, I'm working a lot with this at the moment. To be honest, um, yeah, I'll be. I'll give you a realistic answer. Mine wasn't if you can, make, if, you can, <laughs> if you can make it easier on yourself, uh, if you've got a semi decent boss, tell them at the moment. Through lockdown, I'm actually practicing with a bit of exposure. I'm a bit nervous to come back. And that's great. And I've known stories where the boss has been absolutely fine because you probably, odds on, you won't be the only staff member that struggled with anxiety and developed disordered anxiety over COVID. Trust me, mm. you, you, you won't. But also, I live in the real world. And I know some people's bosses are absolute assholes. They're just not, that have no compassion and don't give a shit. So for, for the first one, tell if you can and you feel safe. But the second one, you're going to just have to practice the exposure on your own because anxiety can't hurt you. And if you can do that with an asshole boss or, or, or a, man, a line of management that isn't great or, or empathetic, then that will help you actually even in the long run with anxiety. So it's almost like the old graded exposure to flooding thing. If you've got, if you've got a compassionate management, then use graded exposure and do it a bit and that compassion can help you. Or you're more capable of doing it even on your own if you have to, because you can do this. And that's the flooding side of things. And mm -hmm. that's what I've had to do with some of my clients. Some of my clients have been like, yeah, I told my boss, they're great. They're going to help me, blah, blah, blah. And some of my clients have been like, no, my boss is really prejudiced towards mental health. He thinks I'm making it up, et cetera. Or she thinks I'm being attention seeking or whatever. And so we've had to do the flooding on, on just between ourselves. It's possible either way, but try and make it easier for yourself if you can. But if you can't, whatever. Or if you've got a colleague that you get on with, chat to them. So it helps you kind of do that. Because we are human. We do thrive off, off social contact. And you can practice. I always think stuff like this is graded exposure is the best. Because mm. flooding flooding is great. And, 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 you know, Drew would kick the door in and be like, I'm here. Screw you, anxiety. I can do this. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, that, that's what I would do. Yeah. That worked really well for me. Yeah. <laughs> But some people, it might be a bit too much. So, yeah, um, that would be my advice. Uh, I would think, it, yeah, I would say, you know, I don't know how long it is before you have to go back to work, but today's Friday, right, in most of the world still. Um, if you have to go back on, to work on Monday, well, you do have two days. Now, you know, two days isn't a lot of time for granted exposure, but you don't have to just sit passively and be tortured by the anticipation. I mean, you can work on tolerating the anticipatory anxiety because it's just like all other anxiety, but you also have power in the process and influence. So why not 
practice driving to work, you know, go and sit in the parking lot, drive a few times, like go in the office if you have access to it over the weekend, like practice a little bit and don't just sit in dread waiting for Monday morning to come. You don't have to do that. So it might be difficult, but start it, let it be difficult now on your terms, as opposed to forced a, a jam down your throat on their terms on Monday morning. That's always something you can do. Like get in, use the time you have, practice what you can in the short amount of time that you have. Always helps. So yeah, my uh, the next question, I'll try and fit them both in. Um, can anxiety over a long period cause other illnesses? I'll answer that one. Um, so yes, it can, but the the mostly the most common secondary illness to anxiety is depression. Um, not a med not a medical illness, but it, yes, a lot of people have secondary depression because, particularly if they're doing an, a large degree of avoidant behaviors. Um, and so I think it's. Uh oh, what happened? <laughs> Sorry, just... Uh, I'm just getting rid of the straw. Go on. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't see it. I'm bummed out. Oh, he's um, going after Drew now. Oh. <laughs> um, so, yes, we yes, you can have secondary depression. Both are very highly treated, so I don't want to say that in any kind of hopeless way. Um, but I always assess for depression if someone comes in with anxiety because it's it's very, very common. If you have OCD, you have a you're, I think the statistic is 75% likely to have suicidal ideation. And so I think it's important that we validate people who have anxiety that depression also does come along with that. Yeah, great answer. Uh, Drew? Um, I mean, I think a lot of times this answer comes from that the whole like, and I know it's sort of out there, it's sort of common discussion and in wellness forums and things of that nature, you know, stress will kill you. It's stress. Stress is a killer. Sadly, I've actually known people personally whose doctors have said, you've got this anxiety. You have to stop this anxiety or it's going to kill you. Like doctors, I've known doctors who have said that to people. Whoa. And of course, like it's, could you imagine a worse thing to say somebody with not that this person isn't living like a hard living, drinking, smoking life, gambling life. They have an anxiety disorder. And when a doctor says this stress is going to kill you, it sends them into the bedroom, mm -hmm. in the bed, locked down, Xanaxed up, and that's it, because otherwise I'm going to die. Yeah, and it's really it's really sad. So is stress a contributor to well-being? Yeah, sure it is. We can't deny that it, it seems to be. But I always try and remind people that the fear of that happening is a, it's not a disease that is coming from the outside in. It's not like you have no control or no agency, no power here. So you know, it's not, it, anxiety is not leukemia, which is a terrible thing that you can't control. You do have the ability to start to make the situation better. And while that might be stressful, at least, at least if you're going to be stressed, you might as well be stressed in the right direction, right? So use the stress and actually learn from it and start to move toward recovery. And then you won't have to worry about that anymore, as opposed to just waiting passively in fear, because then you're going nowhere. Yeah, but how many times do you, do you, how many times do you, that was a great answer. How many times do you ever hear, oh yeah, uh, my mate Tony died from an anxiety disorder. Net right. <laughs> you know, I like no, and, and there's no actual equivocal proof to suggest that anxiety will kill you. They just suggest that the toll it takes on your body may link to some other thing. But there's no evidence to suggest anxiety can kill you. I know. Yeah. I come from a long line of anxious people, and all the women in my family they leave, they leave, live to the eighties, nineties. 
And if anxiety could kill you, they'd be dead at, ten, at 20 years old. You know, so don't get me wrong. Yeah, you're looking at those things. And if, if you've got like blood pressure problems or heart problems and you're smashing panic attacks 10 times a day, you're going to run your risk a little bit. But in general, no. I, I, if someone said to me it has to be a yes or a no answer, I actually lean towards no. I think anxiety can't hurt you. I don't. I don't think anxiety can hurt you more than being stressed with deadlines at work. I genuinely don't. Right. There. There is a yeah. TED talk to back this. There is a researcher on high. Uh, she researches on stress. Um, I think I referenced it when we did the clubhouse. But basically, the research shows that stress is not a, a de- an indicator of health, but the thoughts you have about stress stress seems to be the closest indicator on illnesses, medical illnesses. So if you have stress, but you say my stress is not a problem, you have a very low impact of that. Sorry, you have a low chance of that impacting your medical health. But if you have stress and you're telling yourself you shouldn't be stressed, that's the indicator that impacts your medical health. Mm, that, that's Absolutely. really interesting. And again, that's, that's, yeah, it's contradicts, yeah, contradicts what yeah. that doctor said, doesn't it, Dre? Yeah, and it's so interesting too that I think people are very willing to say things like, well, anxiety is everywhere now. It's, it's the world we live in. Yet at the same time, we know that life expectancy has risen. So we, we will acknowledge that we're in this highly anxious, stressful thing for 25 years while our life expectancy has risen. So which one is it? Are we more anxious or are we dying quicker? Yeah. Can't be both. Like it can be both. We can be more anxious and yet not dying. So there you go. Um, final question uh, from the community. And that was, um, I keep getting panic attacks, um, but I can't seem to figure out uh, what's triggering them. I thought that you guys, <laughs> so he's calling us out. I thought that you guys say that there has to be a trigger. So it has to be a thought, has to be a sensation. So why are these happening out of the blue? It's your haircut, Dean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so they're, they're, saying, they're saying, why do my panic attacks happen out of the blue? Because I don't have a thought or a feeling? Yeah. So they're saying that it's not an irrational or an intrusive thought. Or it's not a feeling that then kickstarts a panic attack. That is, just, they're just walking down the street and bam, they can have a. It, it, it's yeah, it's not even the the surrounding of people. It's not a specific situation they're in. It just has to happens randomly and for no reason. That's what they said. Um, triggers aren't always identifiable, but also there's the trigger already. You've said it in the question. The question is. Right panic attacks are uh, occurring necessarily so the trigger's already there you fear panic attacks now for me right. i have two panic attacks a year uh usually every six months i'm coming up to the six months moment now and i promise <laughs> that i will record a panic attack if it ever occurred uh one it's not a panic attack anyway but i know that adrenaline rush that the, the unrelenting adrenaline rush that comes with the panic it usually happens because i overwork myself i don't look after myself and then suddenly bang it kicks in um but that the trigger used to be as someone with a panic disorder is that oh my god i fear panic attacks why do they keep happening i hope they never go away well then there's the problem you fear panic attacks so even in the question i'd say you reveal what the problem is that you fear <laughs> panic attacks. why am i having panic attacks oh my god they're here there was no trigger yeah 90 percent of my panic attacks as an arbitrary number didn't have a trigger. I was just looking out for panic attacks, seeing if they're going to occur. I know, I know, Drew and Dean can relate to this. And it's like, 
Well, then if I'm in a state of threat monitoring, which is looking for panic attacks, then I'm teaching the brain subliminally that panic attacks are dangerous. So they're just going to trigger anyway. And that's, I mean, that's panic disorder. One. We Panic disorder is, is great fun, not. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's grim, but it's... It, that the problem was in the question itself you know it's there your fear in in your question you're fearing panic yeah, yeah josh i heard you say once that uh, panic uh that the you know the threat response is really fast but really dumb which was one of the more brilliant things i've ever heard said which was really cool oh yeah and it is like really defender for newcastle united yeah right exactly it's really fast but it's really dumb <laughs> and so yes when you fear panic attacks you think there's no trigger but it is instant before you even have the ability to understand that there was a trigger, the cloud that went over the sun, the wind changed direction, everything is a possible threat. And it is so quick, zero to 60 instantaneously that you think there was no trigger, but there really was, there was a thought, a sensation, just so tiny because you're on a hair trigger that you don't even, you weren't looking for it, but it was there. Like, oh, my toe hurt. Boom, panic. I've been there. I remember. I've had weird triggers like, why do I just suddenly feel like one of my worst triggers was like I tie my shoelaces and stand up and feel a bit lightheaded. And then my body would be like, Oh, I'm like, Oh, fuck. Right. Me, man. <laughs> right. And, and I would, yeah, sorry. Go on, Kev. Sorry. I would just raise an alarm for the, any person who's trying to figure out what the trigger is. They're usually doing that because they want to try and avoid that trigger. Um, and be hyper aware of that trigger. So I usually, when someone asks me like, what could my trigger be? I usually just alert them that if, if you're wanting to know so that you can somehow control your anxiety or remove that anxiety, you will get caught back in that cycle. Um, and so, um, you know, it's just something to keep an eye out for because it, it might be, um, you know, a, a slip in compulsion there that we don't even know we're doing. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I love what you said, Drew. Uh, the fact that I, I remember, like, even come four o'clock when the sun's going in, and just a slight change in the light outside would would create anxiety. So yeah, it's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. You've had that as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't miss it, right, guys? Um, I think yeah, we've answered loads of questions. There, so thank you so much. Really appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Um, plug yourself, Dre. You know how to do it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you can find me here on uh, Instagram at the.anxious.truth. And I'm not going to mention my book, which is also called The Anxious Truth. I'm going to mention a project <laughs> that we started, we started building at around 2 a.m. Uh, called Anxiety Radio Live. And if you go to anxietyradio.live, you can watch us building it as we go, which is Right now, it's like 30 of my podcast episodes. We just added a trauma podcast. I know Kim and I were talking about it. Josh and I talked about it. Dean and I talked about it. Watch us add a bunch of podcasts from like seven or eight different mental health creators that you guys all know and love. And it just streams 24-7 and there's all kinds of cool little bumpers and stuff. So it was just a silly middle of the night idea and it's actually turning into a thing. So it's anxietyradio.live. I think it's an absolutely amazing idea. And so I'm having like a great time. I'm going to have to sleep at some point, but, but it was so much fun building it last night. And now here it is. And we get, we're uploading podcasts right now, even as we speak. So it's cool. Could you you listen to that on your phone? Yes, you can listen to it on, because it'll take you to live, uh, live 365, which is like a streaming service. You could download the app or you could just call it up on your web, on, on your web browser and just hit play and it'll just stream all your phones in your pocket. So 
Fantastic. It's cool. Well, like yeah. I said, right now it's mostly me, which sucks. So we're just adding more. Get, <laughs> give us time. We're adding other podcasts as we go. 24 Nobody needs to listen group. to each other. Right. No, no, good. don't do that. <laughs> I'll never get out of so. the bar. <laughs> oh, I almost made it. <laughs> Kimberly, where can everyone find you, please? Uh, my name is Kimberly Quinlan on Instagram. You can I also have a podcast which was on going to be on the radio as well. It's called Your Anxiety Toolkit. Um, and you can get any of my online resources at cbtschool.com. Brilliant. And um, Joshua. Uh, um, find me anxiety josh um got lots of books out including the latest one that dean and i have wrote which is here which is doing really well untangle your anxiety um i'm two-thirds of the way of writing a book on intrusive thoughts which i'm really really enjoying writing um and so look out for that in early summer uh look yeah listen out for my podcast called the panic pod but i'm going to Bang all those episodes on Anxiety Radio, which sounds amazing. So we can do that. Definitely. We're going to get some there. Yeah, I'll speak to you after this, Drew, about that. I love that idea. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, cool. thank you so much. Hope you all have a lovely weekend. Josh, enjoy the sunshine, man. What's that? I will. Like? And thank you, Dean, for hosting a very special event on Instagram. This is very, no one else does this. And I think it's wonderful. Yeah. Appreciate thank that. you. I'm, thank I'm you. so happy thank to be you. here. I do appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at DLC Anxiety. Check our website at dlcanxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.